Hello and welcome back to the lecture series with Reb T, which we try to do in a bi-weekly basis. The show where we talk a topic per session with some practical lessons. Tonight's topic is of criticism and cynicism. Sources are from Safari unless noted otherwise. Look out for the points to carry over the PTCs to hopefully take away with you after tonight. We usually bold, italicize, and underline them if you're using the source sheet that we include we include here on Google Meet, or we include on Sheer Enjoyment if you're looking at it afterwards. All Sheerum are on SheerEnjoyment.com slash Sheerum slash Sheerum dash Reb dash T. Shout out to Jake W for all his wonderful hard work. The lecture series, The Pal, The Audio DT, The OT Talk Show are on different podcast forums, and the DOF shows on Sheer Enjoyment. Please feel free to email me at RebT, R-E-B-T, at SheerEnjoyment.com. Again, feel free to email at rebt at sheerenjoyment.com. Tonight's sheer is the Eloy Neshmas Yaakov ben Yehuda Leib, whose yurtzeit is tonight and tomorrow. Emir Tashem, it's my wife's grandfather, and the learning of this shear should serve as an aliyah for his neshama. The shear should also serve as a zechus for the Rafur Shalim of Yehuda ben Rifkaleah, the Rabbi Kelmer, the Rabbi of our community, for Yisrael Yitzchak ben Rifkaleah, for Shlomo ben Saradina, for the continued health and nachat of Livia Margulit bat Ilana Devorah to her family, and for anyone sick or needing a Yeshua or a Rafua. Can't you do anything right? I asked you to take out the garbage already. Why is the dish still on the couch? Put it in the sink right now. Do your homework already. Get dressed this very instant. Why can't you just pull your weight already? You are no help. Ugh, I could have done it ten times already myself. What's the matter with you? What's wrong with you? These might be just some of the ways we address others, especially our spouses, our kids, our families, and our friends. However, when listening to how this sounds, it feels and sounds quite harsh. Contrary to the famous phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words really can hurt, and words really do hurt, especially when used to be sharply critical and condescending to someone else. Let's first define what these terms mean in tonight's topic, officially from a dictionary standpoint. Criticism is seen as to find fault with, to judge the merits and faults of, to analyze and evaluate, as well as to find what's wrong with something or someone. Cynical can be defined as believing or showing the belief that people are motivated chiefly by base or selfish concerns, skeptical of the motives of others, as well as selfishly or callously calculating, and negative or pessimistic as from world wariness. It can also be seen as distrustful of the motives of others. Further, when we think of one who is a scoffer, which builds on the idea of cynicism and relates to it, the idea of a scoffer can be seen as someone who makes fun or someone or something often of religious or moral values to show or express derision or scorn as well. It's so easy, unfortunately, to criticize others. It is so easy sadly, to criticize our shuls, our schools, our governments, our lands of exile, and even the land of Israel itself in its modern state of how it's run. But how easy is it to accept criticism? 
How easy is it to take in all the musr of lessons that others want to tell us? How easy is it really to do criticism in the right way? Or to hold back and not do it at all? Especially when it is burning within us to come out into the open. If someone must criticize, make sure to do so in a warm and loving manner. With soft-spoken demeanor and words used, I cannot tell you how much of a difference it makes to me when an administrator or a boss or a supervisor tells me something in a harsh, coarse, mean manner versus when it is done in a warm, warm, loving, kind manner with nice words and a nice demeanor. If someone has to let go of someone from a job, God forbid, it could be done in a nice, calm, respectful manner versus the opposite, God forbid. Think about how people let others go. Think about how they go about doing so. How could they phrase it? Think about the following made-up situation. Yankel has been in your business advertising company for 10 months. Although the company has been around 10 plus years, recent competition and economic problems have put the company in serious financial trouble. You have cut costs in every manner possible. As a last resort to use money from a salary to save the company, you had to make the terrible decision of letting someone go to get back that money to save the company. The company has 10 employees, most of which have been with you since the beginning, all of them putting in 10 plus years except for Yankel. So the decision to have to let him go is inevitable in some way. And as a preemptive measure, which I believe is a nice thing to give a heads up from the start, which might not be so realistic or practical, but for our story, we say... You had told him a few months ago to start looking around in the job market as the company was not in its top manner anymore and not everyone will be able to stay, unfortunately. Pause. In this scenario, in this scenario, what can be done to soften the blow? If you tell Yankel, if you were the boss, you told Yankel to come in, how would you summon him to begin with, not even talking about letting him go, but summoning him to your office, what would you do? Unpause. Let's look at version A and B of the summons itself. Think about version A of the summons. Hi, Uncle. It's Schmeral here. Would you be at all possible to please come to my office when you have a minute? I need to talk to you when you have time. Pause. This is how I talk a lot of times. I do say, can I trouble you? Can I bother you? Because I want people to know from my own life and my own experience that it is a trouble. It is a bother on some level. And if they can make the time to make it into the schedule, please come. Some people might not talk like this, but this is the version I'm thinking of for version A. Unpause. This might be less anxiety provoking than version B of the summons, which could be done very often. Seen very often. Yankel, come to my office immediately. We need to talk. Pause. What do you think the reaction would be on the part of Yankel to this statement, which is probably very often used? Do you think he'll like that? Do you think he'll feel good coming to the office? Or is he going to be terrified, shaking in his boots, knowing that something is not right? 
Unpause. That latter phrase is a terrifying way to be told to come to the boss. Obviously, in the summons case here, A versus B, even if many people don't talk like A, A is much better, in my opinion. Version A is much better. Let's take it a little further. Sometimes people do have to let people go from companies, from situations and the like. Unfortunately, if it has to be done, it is done in a harsh critical and abrupt manner. Again, let's look at two versions of version A and version B. Here is version A of letting the person go. Let's see what we think about this. So Yanko was summoned to your office. He's sitting in your office right opposite you, this guy who's been under your care for 10 months as your employee. Hi, Yanko. We need to talk. We're sorry, but we need to let you go to save the company. You have been here the least time. Your work is not as good, not as lasting or as helpful as everyone else. Pause. Of course, I embellished it and I dramatized it a little bit. But on some level, this is what people say. We're sorry. You need to go. We need to let you go. We can't keep you here. We are not able to keep you as part of the company, whatever, yada, yada. But in some form or essence, this is very often what we see when someone is let go from a company or from a job or from a position. They do this version A. Unpause. That is an abrupt, critical, mean, and harsh way, in my opinion, to let the employee go. It feels terrible to the employee, shatters his esteem and his life in general. Here's another way to phrase it, exerting more words and more time to explain in version B. So Yanko comes to your office and you have to let him go. But how do you let him go? How do you emphasize him? How do you talk to him that you need to let him go from the company? This is what I think version B could sound like. Hi, Yanko. I want to talk to you for a bit. Unfortunately, the economy has hit us really hard. We're not able to hold on to all of our amazing workers. The company can only keep those who have been with us 10 plus years with many years of seniority, especially since the founding, the beginning of the company, due to our severe financial constraints. We wanted to let you know that you are superbly talented. You've made a wonderful difference at this company. As a token of our appreciation, here's a severance package and a list of our competitors and other companies to work at. I also wrote a letter of recommendation for you to show there's no hard feelings and I'm terribly sorry to let you go. I want you to succeed. I hope this letter will help you land another job soon. I wish you much success in the future. And I'm terribly sorry to have to see you go. Good luck with everything and be well. Pause. What would the reaction of this employee be? You think about version A and you think about version B. In this version, don't you think you're doing much more of a service to the employee? You're ending terms but on a much nicer way, a much more peaceably way and you're actually giving him the way the tools to try to go on with his life it only takes a few more words it takes a few kind deeds in this act to change the whole element of him his life being shattered to actually helping him rebuild and move on writing that letter could take you a half hour 20 minutes if you're really talented you know thinking of companies you know all your competitors you know who people are against you you can't hold on to him why can't someone else have him that's a chesed 
and you think about telling him to give him a severance package, you figure out some ways to, to give him some benefits to, to move on now that you cut costs at your company, different ways to help him out. Unpause. Even though the same messages conveyed that the employee had to have been let go, the recipient can feel much better about the outcome and the boss as well. Why should he have negative, nasty feelings against you because you let him go? There is a way of doing it that you don't have to have that. His dignity of the worker is intact. The worker's dignity is preserved. And he could feel good about the boss also. He can make, he could feel good that he made a difference in the company. He could feel good that he made some effect in the company. He made some impact in the world. And there's some wiggle room for him to look for new jobs thanks to the severance package. The options, the recommendations, the letters, the idea for him to move forward is wonderful. And it only takes a little bit of effort to literally change a situation that could be devastating to his life. That could critically destroy him with criticism. And you change it to be something that spurs him on to find the next big good thing for him. So obviously, in my opinion, in this case, version B is the way to go. You have to let him go. Just figure out better ways to go about saying it. Not only is it avoiding criticism, but major chesed to help the worker find a job. As the highest level of tzedakah, the Rambam explains, is that of giving someone or helping someone find a job. Not to need tzedakah is the best level to help someone. As pointed out by Chabad.org, from the Rambam in the Mishnah Torah, Laws of Charity, Laws of Tzedakah, the greatest level above which there is no greater is to support a fellow Jew, endowing him with the gift or the loan and entering into a partnership with him, or finding employment for him. In order to strengthen his hand, he doesn't need to be dependent on others. Helping someone find a job is therefore the highest level of charity, a major chesed. So not only did you figure out a way not to use words that are damaging or or but you also go above and beyond by doing a chesed. You're letting him go, but you're doing a chesed, helping him look for another job, even if he can't be at your company. As the phrase lahavdo goes, which I think comes from a Chinese proverb, give a man a fish. And you feed him for one day. You teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. The idea being that teaching someone how to do something is more helpful to them in the long run than just doing it for them. Or giving or helping someone to find a job is more helpful than giving charity as they learn to do. They learn to support themselves and their families rather than relying on others. Using our words in the right ways can really help in so many ways and is so important in so many factors. You can learn from Yaakov and Moshe Rabbeinu. They didn't criticize until the ends of their lives, and even so, they chose their words so carefully. For example, we're going to look in a second. Yaakov cursed the anger of Shimon and Levi, but not them themselves. Yaakov mentioned the idea of what Reuven did, but not punishing Reuven and letting him go from being part of the Shvatim. Even when Yaakov criticized these three children for their conduct, he did so at the end of his life in a simple manner. Actually, in my Parsha coming up this week, my favorite Parsha of the whole Torah, my Bar Mitzvah Parsha Vayechi, all the brachos in Vayechi and, and Yaakov coming about each shavit, talking about a specific aspect of them. And he comes to Reuven and Shimon and Levi and he talks about what happened. You know, it talks about Ruvain moving the bed of uh, of of uh, of his parents, getting involved in their 
in their private life, which was not good. And then for Shimon and Levi, he talks about their rage, not themselves. He talks about when angry, they slay men. Cursed be their anger. It never says, God forbid, cursed be Shimon and Levi. He cursed their anger, cursed their deeds, which is a lesson in and of itself, which I talk about all the time on the lecture series and on and all the shows. We have to be careful to distinguish between people and their actions. People are not black and white in terms of good and bad. You know, a soul is not all black. A soul is not all white. It's really area of the shades of gray. It could be a soul, a white soul with a lot of black. But it's a lot of looking at things in different ways. And even when people do things wrong, we tend to make the awful mistake of making their whole existence be pivoting on that one bad thing. The, the article Machser talks about in Vidoy, which, I, which I, I constantly think to myself, we make the awful mistake of hating people for themselves instead of hating them for their deeds. We could hate a deed. We could be dis- disagreeing on many aspects of people's choices and people's actions, but we should never make the awful mistake of hating the person. They might have views different than you. Their hashkafa might be different. Their politics might be different. Their way of life might be different from you. But it doesn't mean you hate the person. You could disagree on their viewpoints. You could be upset and disappointed with their actions. But that's not their essence of a person. A person is a hundred points. One point could be that they have a problem with this, a problem with that, or... They struggle with this, they struggle with that, but that's not the essence of the person. That might be the struggle Hashem gave them, but that's not their essence. You could curse the actions Yaakov teaches us. You could curse their anger, but don't ever curse themselves. Don't ever go against them themselves. That's why these great people didn't even say anything until the end of their lives, because criticism is so harsh and so severe. Even when criticizing, Yaakov made sure to do so in a manner that would be productive. And careful. Look what Moshe Rabbeinu does. He waits all the way till Devarim, the end of 40 years, his last 36 days on earth, finally decides to talk up. He waits till Devarim. Why? Elahad Devarim, it says in the beginning of Devarim. Why? These are words of reproof. And he's saying it, he's expressing things, and he's referring to things that the Bnei Israel did only as a mere illusion. Some of the words, the places that Moshe is referencing don't exist because they're really alluding to things that Bnei Israel did at different points in their history in different places. And he's alluding to them in a subtle way, trying to explain to them what they did without trying to, to embarrass them or criticize them openly and loudly. And he says it to all of Israel. Why all of Israel? Why not just a hundred people, all six, all five million, four million, whatever, how many people were there? Because if he only criticized some of them, and I'm using the word criticize lightly, some of them who were absent might have said, you heard from the son of Amram? You didn't answer him. If I was there, I would have had an answer. If I was there, I would have known what to say. So Moshe said, uh-uh, I am not criticizing only one part. Everyone comes together. Let anyone who has any answer try to respond. He assembled everyone together. Anyone who has a reply, let him try to reply. And why is he doing in the 40th year? He reproved them only shortly before his death, a month and a little bit before he dies. Who did he learn to do this from? From Yaakov, who did it right before his death. He tells you, he tells Ruvain and then Shimon and Levi. He also learns from Yoshua and he and Yoshua, excuse me, learns from Moshe also shortly before his death, and Shmuel also does it later on, and David also does it right before his death, which is the Haftorah, which is linked to Vayechi, also one of my favorite Haftorahs in the entire 
Tanakh, obviously, because I'm biased. But anyway, David also reproves his son right before his death. He tells him what to do with Shimi, and he tells him what to do to follow Hashem. But anyway, Moshe waits till the end to do so. And he made sure to do so after they acquired part of the land, after they had their wars with Sichon and Og. Why did Moshe wait to do it then? He wanted them to see that they have the land. He has the power to bring them in the land. He didn't leave them in the wilderness. He started the process. He waited until they defeated Sichon and Og and gave them possession of their land. And then he reproved them. Because Moshe figured out how to criticize them the best way only at the end of his life. In front of everyone, subtly hinting at different sins once they had control of some of the land of Israel. He needed four factors, four factors to feel like he's ready to criticize them at the end of his life, in front of everyone, subtly hinting once they had possession of the land. How many of us have any factor that puts us in the right place to even do a little bit of criticism? Criticism in general is really something that is best to avoid. Two great Ace articles from author Sir Yocheved Riegler, where we adapted and we're going to quote for you here, she wrote it better than I could ever say. Is there one thing a person can do to prevent most of the ills and bad things in life? Is there a single practice that will enable and eliminate the chill, the plague that affects our life, especially in relationships? Yes, there is. But one shot is not enough. And even injections, two or three throughout the day, throughout the week, won't help. This is something we have to do every day, and it's so effective, and the results are amazing. What is that? Stop criticizing. Criticism destroys so much, it takes away the bond between people. It feeds the negativity of the criticizer. It undermines the self-esteem of that one who is criticized. Studies have shown the human brain is geared towards negativity. This is called the negativity bias by psychology. The, the tendency to notice and remember the negative more than the positive. How often does a spouse remember the birthday that was forgotten by the other spouse? So many more times... Than, than, the t- than the amazing things he did for the birthday. If a person is married for 42 years, 40 of those times you remember the birthday, but two times you forgot, which do you think the spouse is going to remember? Unfortunately, it's the negativity bias to think about the bad instead of focusing on the good. The husband will focus on the extravagant expenditure in a credit card, even though she, she usually buys amazing things. Or somebody will criticize something that the husband forgot to do the trash one time this week, even though he did it 400 times the other weeks. Because we have the tendency to look for the wrong, to see the wrong. But never are intelligent people more prone to folly than when they criticize in an effort to improve, especially a spouse, because no one improves from criticism. He's still going to leave his socks on the floor after decades of nagging. They're still going to spend too much time in your opinions, talking on the phone, even if you keep pointing out what they should do instead. Repeated criticism is like the idea of insanity is doing something over again and thinking you'll have a different result. For 30 years, I've been telling my diabetic husband he shouldn't eat this and what he shouldn't eat. For 30 years, you've been telling him and you expect a different result this time? Insanity. Criticism is worse than merely being ineffective to change your partner. It creates a toxic atmosphere in the home. No one likes it. It doesn't help anybody. It estranges the party that you're criticizing. They're going to withdraw emotionally or physically. They're going to walk away or go for a walk. It's not going to help. 
and it's just going to harm the person who's doing it and the person who's hearing it, ending in a cycle that's more vicious and more vicious. It's also a violation of onas devarim, speaking words that hurt another person. So what do you do? What should we do? Stop criticizing. Simply stop criticizing. SSC. Simply stop criticizing. The author here, Serio Chavid Riegler, says to go on a criticism fast. Every time you're about to criticize your spouse or your friend or a family member, stop and say to yourself, criticism never helps and always hurts. I'm going to repeat that. These wonderful words right here. Criticism never helps and always hurts. That's a phrase we should write down and keep in our minds and play it over and over and over again. A last time. Criticism never helps and always hurts. The Musser Masters advise using a chart to change ingrained behavior patterns. Make a chart of a box each day. Every time you're tempted to criticize your spouse or your friend or your family and you stop, give yourself a check on the chart. Lahavdal, lahavdal, if people do it for alcoholism or for gambling or, or, or stealing, whatever addictions, afflictions that people have to deal with, they take another day, another clean day, another good day, they give themselves a check. Any habit we want to fight, we should also use a chart for, especially criticizing. And it takes 90 days to change a habit, psychology says. It takes 30 days to make a habit, but three times as long to break a habit. So this chart could help you. 90 days would start a day, a day, a day. When you get 10 checks... Buy yourself a small thing, a small reward you like, like a yummy cup of coffee. When you get 25 checks, you're almost at a month. Buy yourself a nice big reward. That coffee machine you always wanted, that you really wanted. Serial Chad Riegler also responds to critics and talks about in another article, further idea of not criticizing. The Torah actually prohibits negative speech, even if it's true. What we talked about, Lashon Hara, Onat Stavar, speaking about another person, which is Lashon Hara, even if it's true, alienates both the speaker and the listener from the person being spoken about. Speaking words that hurt the person you are speaking to, which is Onastivarm, alienates the criticizer from the criticized and vice versa. There is a commandment to rebuke your, your fellow Jew, but who really knows how to give criticism? You're not supposed to hold a grudge in your heart, but the parameters of giving proper rebuke are carefully delineated by the Chachamim, by the sages. Rebuke must be given privately and specific. Don't say you never blank. You always blank. Of course, do not use words like you're demented, you're, you're terrible. What's wrong with you? What's the matter with you? That would never help, and that's terrible words to use. The person rebuked must feel helped rather than criticized. But already 1,500 years ago, the sages said, no one knows any longer how to rebuke properly. So the mitzvah of rebuke can rarely be pro- properly fulfilled. Somebody commented, com, com, made a comment excuse me, on the first article quoted by Seri Chavit Riegler and said, hope, most likely the Chavit Chaim said, more than we have lost the ability to hear criticism, we have lost the ability to deliver it. We must realize there are so many parameters around it, it's really not easy to do nowadays. Every person must be aware of their feelings. And the, you have to take responsibility for the feelings. Don't just shoot off against your spouse, your friend, your family. Think where it's coming from. Aware, be aware of your own feelings and how you could frame a situation and how you might feel differently. Introspect. Find your motive for expressing negative feelings. 
It's crucial to control the words that come out of our mouths. Be careful in what we say to another person. The idea then is to throw away the idea of criticizing. Just stop what you're about to say. Hold it in. Swallow the comment. Count to ten. Walk away. Let it go. See what happens. Peace and serenity can then reign, which is greater than any words you could have ever said that you would have thought would help, but indeed, instead, would have greatly hurt. Look what Rabbi Shraga Simmons points out to us on H.com. Great story about Eliyahu Hanavi, who happens to be one of my favorite Nevi'im in the entire Tanakh, if not my favorite prophet in the entire Tanakh, Elijah, Eliyahu Hanavi. He meets up with a fisherman in Tanah Debe Eliyahu. Eliyahu asks him, do you study Torah? The fisherman says, no, I'm just a simple man. I don't have any measure of talent or intelligence. Eliyahu says to him, tell me, how do you prepare your fishing net? Well, said the man, it's actually quite complicated. First, I select the proper gouge rope, and then I weave the net in a pattern to get the balance of strength and flexibility. Then Eliyahu asks, how do you go about actually catching the fish? So the man replies, it's very, very complicated. There's complex factors like the temperature, the depth of the water, the speed of the current, season of the year, the time of the day, the type of the fish location. I've spent years mastering these techniques. I'm able to earn a good living from fishing. Thank God. Elio says to him, when you get to heaven, you said you planned to testify you didn't study Torah study because you're just a simple man, not endowed with any talent or intelligence. But your expertise as a fisherman refutes your own very claim. What a wonderful way of pointing out to someone how they could do more with their time and abilities. He didn't push him down. He didn't knock him down. He didn't use any terrible words or phrases or mannerisms, not making a person feel terrible about themselves. He just pointed out he has talents. You ever hear someone says he doesn't have time to study Torah or, or, or visit his friends or, do, or, or help out around or do chesed? What about all those hours of TV he watched? All those hours of sitting around doing nothing? That's tochacha. That's, in, in contra, that's incontrovertible proof. Excuse me little tongue-tied. H.com also points out a fascinating story by Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, who wrote it, about the idea of license plates. In the early 1970s, Maryland was one of the first states that came out with vanity license plates, where you could write anything and personalize your license plate with six letters, up to six letters. The author's friend's father had a great idea. He was working as a director for NCSY, the National Conference of Synagogue Youth, the Kirov organization, Get Kids Closer to the Flame of Torah. So he got a license plate with the word Torah, T-O-R-A-H. Five letters, you're allowed up to six. He was so proud of that license plate. Driving around, every so often, somebody Jewish would pull up beside him and honk and wave to show or take pride in their Jewish identity. Of course, sometimes others would honk and give a different gesture to demonstrate their lack of support for Torah or Jews. Of course, there are, there are bad people out there and people who always want to try to knock anything we do. But we look for the positive and we're thinking about the positive. Anyway, one hectic Friday, the man had an order waiting for him at a restaurant, which is so applicable to all of us who eat out, anyone who's a foodie or anyone who's married to a foodie, <clears throat> or anyone who likes to eat from restaurants or to order out. We know the idea of, of running to a restaurant or them delivering to us nowadays in crazy times. So the hour was late. Shabbat. Shabbos was coming. There was no place to park. He circled around the block once and finally he doubly parked, turned on his hazard lights and ran in to pick up his orders. 
which were not completely ready. A few moments later, he returned to his car to find not one but two notes on the windshield, which essentially said the same thing. For a Torah Jew, illegally double parking and blocking traffic is not a mitzvah. Message received. Just one week later, that friend's father was driving and found himself stuck behind a driver who seemed to be moving in slow motion. He sped up to pass him and stared down the slow driver as he did. Sure enough, half a mile later, he stopped at a traffic light and the other driver pulled up next to him, rolled down his window and said to him, You know, a person representing Torah should have a little more patience. That night, the author's friend's mother saw the husband removing the license plates from his car and asked him what he's doing. He responded, I'm going back to number plates. But his wife responded, but why? You love these plates. He related the recent events to his wife, what happened to him. He shared his frustration. But instead of offering comfort or support, she challenged him with one line. So what you're saying is you would rather change your license, your license plate, than change your behavior? You'd rather change your license plate than change your behavior? Suffice it to say, he kept the license plates and he worked on changing himself. We can point out to other people, to ourselves, how to better themselves and ourselves with using subtle maneuvers or hints or pointing out their strengths and building on them, not knocking them down, not using words, mean words, hurtful words. Focus on the positive not the negative. And don't think that you have to be the one to, to tell people what to do to give criticism, especially if the person you think needs the criticism is married, has a wife, has a spouse, has kids. They, are, they know what to do. The wife is the, is the moral compass. The wife is the one that will get you to where you need to go. Azer Konegda, the wife should be opposite you, helping you. And very often in life, I'm guided in life thanks to my wonderful, fantastic wife. She tells me where I need to go. She tells me what I need to do. I don't need criticism from anybody else. My wife tells me how I need to go and does it in the best way possible. Not criticizing, just pointing me in the right direction, the right way. Anytime you think you need to say to someone else, they probably already know what to do thanks to a spouse or a beloved friend or a beloved family member. Why are you trying to say anything anyway? Remember the context, the aspect of people. I myself, thank God, have my guide, have my captain, my wife. So to in a, many of our lives, we have the person, the spouse or the family member, the close friend that could guide us. But in general, it's important to understand and focus on the positive, not the negative. I was a psychology major. I got a psychology degree as a BA in YU. We learned in psychology, when I was a psych major, the idea of positive versus negative reinforcers and punishments. The field of psychology has studied that positive reinforcement to give something to see more of a good behavior. That is the idea of positive reinforcement, dumbed down, very, very dumbed down by me. To give something to see more of a good behavior. Basically, giving a verbal brace to my son or a primary enforcer to my son, like a snack or a food, that's a primary thing because it's something primary need in the body, like eating, or a secondary reinforcer, like a token, or a gift, or a toy, to see more of good behavior. Thank you so much for doing that. You did such a good job. You did so nice helping me make the pancakes today. I'm so proud of you, buddy. You were so helpful helping me put the laundry in the wet machine. Now let's go put it in the hot machine, which is what I say to my kids, often on Sundays. 
sometimes when they help me because I want to see more of that good behavior helping Abba. I don't want to have to use any other. I want to use verbal praise. Or, if you help me now, we can make the pancakes. Pancakes are a primary reinforcer. It's food. We're hungry. Or, you know what? You keep doing a great job. Maybe we'll look for that new Lightning McQueen toy that you like so much. So, positive reinforcement is better than any negative reinforcement. What's negative reinforcement? Removing something to see more of the good behavior. So, that's like... Yankel, a different Yankel, not the Yankel from before. You know what? You, you don't have to do so many chores in the house anymore because you did so well on your test. So that's like less tangible than a positive reinforcer. If I said, Yankel, let's go give you that ice cream because you did so well. It's better than saying, Yankel, you'll have less chores in the house. They say positive reinforcer is better. And it's definitely better to use positive reinforcement than any punishment, good or bad. So good punishment or positive punishment... It's called giving more homework to decrease tantruming. Instead of writing good or bad, it's really giving more punishment to decrease tantruming. So positive, not not in a good way, but positive meaning adding on something. I don't want to see your tantruming. Stop tantruming. You're going to have to do more homework now. That's positive punishment. Or losing TV privileges to decrease tantrums. You keep up these tantrums, I'm taking away Ben and Jerry. Not Ben and Jerry, I'm taking away Tom and Jerry. You want to take away the tantruming. You want to take away something to decrease the behavior. You're going to lose your TV privileges because I need you to stop tantruming. Positive punishment, negative punishment, negative reinforcement don't work as well as positive reinforcement. Positive, being positive is always better, in my opinion. And this works with talking to others, praising what they do instead of criticizing what they do. For example... If the husband or the wife are really hectic, really busy in the morning, and they never help, not never, we don't say never, but it's very hard for them to help out often, but there is one day that they helped get everyone ready, what do you think they should do? Pause. You have a spouse who's supremely busy in the morning. They don't have the time. Very often they're running out and you feel so angry, so upset, you have to do everything by yourself. What do you think should happen? One time they actually do help, what do you think should be the response? Why can't you do this every day? Why can't you help me every day? It's so hard taking every care of everything by yourself. You're so not helpful. You're always running away. You're never helping me. Never good things to say. No aspect of any of those things I just mentioned would be helpful. Instead, try to think of saying something like this. Honey, it is so wonderful for you to help. Instead of them saying, God forbid, honey, why can you never help me in the morning? It's so hard for me. You never help. You always run. It ruins my day. I'm in a bad mood the whole day. Very, very negative. Instead, unpause. Why don't you say something that's not harsh, not full of criticism, but say, honey, thank you so much for helping me to get the kids ready today. I cannot tell you how much it helped and how much it made my day go so much easier. How much more likely is the spouse to help again after getting such lavish praise? What do you think? A lot more, you better believe it. The same would go for kids and others at work as positive reinforcement, I truly believe, really works better than anything else. Better than negative reinforcement. Better than positive punishment. Better than negative punishment. There are examples throughout Tanakh how criticism was done if it was necessary. We have a few examples here. Look at how Nasan Hanavi, one of my Hebrew names, I think of Nasan the prophet, who prominently displays in two episodes we're going to talk about right here. King David, 
had to be criticized, quote-unquote, for the episode with Uri and Batsheva. We're, famous, we're, we're, we're famously familiar with it from Tanakh, you know. The Medrash says that David wanted to be one of the people mentioned in the in the Shemona Esrei, and David was like, Hashem, why doesn't it say L-O-K David? It says, okay, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov. So Hashem says, because I never tested you. So David says, test me, which we know we're never supposed to do. Never ask Hashem to test you. It is not a good idea on any level. So, David, so Hashem says, okay, I'm going to test you. So basically, David somehow... Um, somehow sees Bachever, whatever, and he and he realizes that uh, this is the person for him, but he doesn't go out in the best way, and he sends off Uriah to the battle. Everyone retrieves, but Uriah is on the front lines and dies. So Nasan comes to Nav, to David, excuse me, and he has to figure out a way to 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 criticize him because he needs to get the message across from Hashem. So he sets him a parable. He gives to him a story. There were two men in the same city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had very many large flocks and herds, but the poor man had only, only one little lamb that he had bought. He tended it. It grew up together with him and his children. It shared in his bread. It drank from his cup. It was in his couch, in his, in his house, in his, in his bed. Sometimes it was like a daughter to him. One day a traveler came to the rich man, but he was loath to take anything from his own flocks or herds to prepare a meal for the guest. Would come to him, so he took the poor man's lamb and gave it to the man who came. David said, "So Nathan's asking David's uh, opinion because David is like the supreme law of the land. He's like the head of the Sanhedrin. He's the king." David flew into a rage and said to him, "As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Pay for him four times over. He did such a bad thing." Nathan says to David, "That man is you. Hashem said, I anointed you over Israel. I rescued you from Shaul. I gave you wives. I gave you the house." I gave you so much, but what did you do? You you put Uriah to death. You took his wife. Therefore, the sword will never depart from you. And uh, there's going to be calamity. People are going to die. But David, to his credit, stands up right away and says, I am guilty before Hashem. Interestingly, as a side point, pause. Shaul, we're going to look at it in a second. When he does something wrong, he defends himself. But But David... When he does something wrong, he stands up to it right away. And that's why we see David as the, as the, as the essence of tshuva. Because David owns up to what he does wrong. That's why he gives us to Hillam with, with these heart-wrenching cries and pleas to Hashem. And, and Nassim immediately replies, because you did this, okay, so what's going to happen is the kid's going to die, but whatever. And anyway, Nassim figured out a way to rebuke David in a creative but effective way using a mashal, a parable. Look at what Shmuel said when he heard about Shaul not fulfilling the command, the very famous Haftorah, when uh, Shaul is commanded to wipe out all of Amalek. And instead, Shaul leaves Agag in jail. And the Medrash explains that Agag, because of that one night, he was able to conceive when, when he met up with his wife. And from his descendants comes Haman. Because of that one mistake, that one day that Shaul, that, uh, Shaul let Agag live, one of the people, one of the worst people who wanted to perpetrate an, an old school holocaust, Yamach Shimon, Haman, Almost succeeded, God forbid, all because of this mistake. But, of course, Shmuel kills him later on. But what does Shaul hear from Shmuel? What does Shmuel say to him? He comes to him and Shaul is so happy, I, I fulfilled the Lord's command, I did what Hashem said. But Shmuel says one sentence, one phrase, fascinating. What is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Shmuel, with one line, is able to shoot shoot down what King Shaul did. He sees Agag before him. 
He says to Agag, just because you you made mothers bereft of children, so to your mother will be bereft of children, which is me to connect in a way. And Shmuel himself kills Agag, which is fascinating that a Navi, the leading Navi at the time, did so, but he got what had to get done. So that's how he laid out the facts. You see what happens. You can you could talk in a way with using words, subtlety, and, and hints to get people to understand what they need to know without shooting them down. You can lay out the facts and see how rebuke has to be done. Adoni Yahu and Malachim Aleph Aleph. King David is old, cold, laying in his last throes of life. And his son, his second son to try to usurp the throne. First was Avshalom for a while, then Adoni Yahu tries to take everything away. So Nasan again, Nasan Anavi stepping up to the plate, stepping up to the game. He tells Bathsheba, let's go to King David. And you you start off telling him the story, and I'm going to supplement your words. I'm going to I'm going to verify what you said. So Bathsheba comes and says, "What's going on here? Adonio is usurping the throne. He took famous, powerful people with him, but he didn't invite you know uh, Shlomo and some other people." And Nassan supplements the words and says, "What's going on here? Everyone's looking to you, David, to help us. What what's going to happen?" So David, to his strength, in his even though in his severely weakened state. He's cold and old and laying frail. He had a very difficult life. He says, what I said to you will happen. Shlomo will succeed me. He will sit on my throne. So King David's wife and Nassim the prophet again, stand up to point out to King David what must be done. Not criticizing him, but seeking his guidance and assistance. Especially as he lay helpless and old and cold. Showing him the situation, laying it out. Sometimes one key message, one key idea can spark the action can be better than any intense criticism in mind. Think about what Mordechai tells Esther in the famous Purim story of the Megillah. This is one of my favorite lines in the entire Megillah. It comes from Perak Dalet of Esther. Mordechai had the message delivered to Esther by Hasach. Some say Hasach was Daniel, the famous Daniel prophet from um, from uh, um, Ksuvos. He has, um, excuse me, not Ksuvos, from, um, from Tanakh, from uh, Ksuvim. You know, and uh, say for Daniel, so they say that it might have been him. But anyway, the message was delivered to Esther. Do not imagine that you, when she's in the throne, she's in the palace, Mordechai says something has to be done. Do not imagine that you of all the Jews will escape with your life by being in the king's palace. So often through history, the sidebar is to realize that people think they could assimilate. People think they could hide. But the, the, the Yamach Shemos of the world, whether in the Holocaust in World War II or the Holocaust throughout history, all the times, the Inquisitions, people don't care the, the religiosity of the Jew. People don't care about the assimilation of the Jew. You can't hide. They're always out to get us. The famous phrase is, if God forbid the Jew doesn't keep Shabbos, the non-Jew will make Havdalah for them. Which is a very, very intense phrase. If a Jew won't keep Shabbos, God forbid, won't keep the Torah, won't keep mitzvahs, the non-Jew will be forced to do Havdalah. Because no matter what, on any level, on any aspect, we're separate, distinct from the non-Jews. And they realize that. Even if we think, God forbid, someone thinks to run away as as in, in the years of old and try to be enlightened or assimilate or whatever, doesn't matter where you are. Even Esther, hiding in the king's palace, pretending she's not Jewish, it will come out that she's Jewish. You will not be safe. No one is ever safe except in the hands of Hashem. By really embracing our Judaism and our religiosity, that's really the best way to do it. People have more respect for our Judaism when we don't hide it, when we're proud of it. That's why I make it a point 
in school to wear a kippah, to walk around and realize that any action or any in, involving with students in my school as an OT, they realize that I'm trying to represent Judaism. Sometimes we hide it outside because of reasons of worry at the subway or the train, whatnot, I wear a hat. But in the school, wherever I go, we're trying to represent Judaism and people respect you for that, respect more when you do that. But Esther thinks that she's going to hide in the palace. Mordechai says, no, don't imagine you're going to escape with your life by being in the king's palace. On the contrary, if you keep silent in this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another quarter, while you and your father's house will perish. You know, we say that very intense phrase in the Megillah. He got Lamachus. You know, who knows? Perhaps that's the wrong tune, but I'm mixing up Echa and uh, Purim, Lahavdil, Lahavdil. But anyway, the phrase is that, you know, you were brought here for a reason. Perhaps you attained the royal position just for this moment, just for this crisis. One key message gets through to Esther. This message spurs Esther more than any criticism, any aspect of, of rebuke. Could have done more than this? No way. This phrase did more than any rebuke or any criticism would have done. She got up after this and went and saved the day for the Jewish people. Even Hashem himself teaches us how to open conversation with others and not have to be critical. He uses the word Ayeka in Bereshis. Rashi points out, why does he use Ayeka? He knew where he was, but he asked this in order to open up a conversation with him, not to be confused in reply. Similarly by Cain, where Ayeka, where is a, where is Havel? Similarly with Bilam, who are these men with you? Hashem knows all these, but he wants a conversation. In order to talk to people, we need to have conversation, not just rebuking and criticizing people. Even using specific terms can help direct others in many ways to turn to the right path. Rabbeinu Bachir points out the amazing idea of accepting reproof and criticism. It depends on your ability to accept that the highest virtue is to accept criticism and listen to who rebukes you. It's the basis for familiar of the Torah. A wise person presents criticism to another person who is receptive to it. It's like an earring or an adornment, adornment which beautifies the soul of the individual. It's a wonderful thing when we accept it and use it in the right way, when it's done in the right way, in the right manner. To reign in bad behavior and to go for good behavior. Accept criticism if done right. To make you feel better and go better, to do right in the light of Torah, in the right way of Torah. Make sure not to be a cynical person or a cynic. Be optimistic, have upbeat outlook on life as well. A positive person is better to be around, better to be in general, as it makes life feel more pleasant. You could be a role model to everyone to, that comes in contact with you. A cynical person is always negative, looking for the ill in everything, trying to find wrong with everything. It's better to be someone who looks for good in everything. We have a whole sheer about that. And Rabbi Kiva is a role model to look for positivity. Real criticism really works also by being a better role model. Giving tochacha doesn't mean criticizing, throwing stones, shooting names, shouting louder than the next guy. It's through action and deed. So the best solution is not even to have negative comments, not to have to swallow them, but to be that person to inspire others. Be the role model that people can live up to and learn from. Look what Ish points out with author Rabbi Jay Goldmans. You want to be a spiritual role model, you put things into effect. You get people's attention. You do something to draw the attention. Think about someone who helps cook meals. On some tiny level, my wife and I try to do this. When people give birth or low lane, if someone lost someone, find a meal train, take them a meal. And not only just giving them chicken and rice, but go above and beyond. What's wrong with giving them a drink, 
giving them utensils, giving them a napkin, giving them dessert, make it all inclusive, a nice, well-around meal. But if a woman does this, a parent does this, and the kids have no idea, it's a loss of an opportunity. More than any criticism, learning through action and deed could do so much more. It would be a mistake not to draw the kids' attention to it sooner. People can't learn what they don't know they're supposed to learn. But remember to see and hear things and do things over and over again so people can learn how life should go. Every Shabbos table you sing, you do Dvar Torahs. Don't say, sit on the table right now! We need to do Dvar Torahs every Shabbos! Instead of that, through action and deed, even if the kids are screaming or crying, which happens all the time for me, I still... Blin Adder and Mirta Shamblianhar still try to say something on the Parsha every week. We have the Ramban piece and the Orachayim piece we try to do, Blin Adder, and, and, and Rabbi, Rabbi uh, Rosner's book, Blin Adder, Ambracious and Shmos, we try to do, and then the Lohalacha piece and the Kit Parsha. Blin Adder, Mirta Shamblianhar, we try to do everything we can, but on a repetitive motion, repetitive basis, I'm not going to criticize them and say, sit down right now! No, instead we read about the Parsha. Who wants to hear Kit Parsha? Who wants to hear Parsha Parsha? You do brachos on, on thunder. You, you want behaviors or feelings or stories to have done. It has to be repeated and internalized until it's part of the fabric of the being. And you must do the action on the part of yourself. You can't criticize others if you yourself are not working on it yourself. You yourself need to be part of it. And it needs practice to do it over and over again to be ingrained in life. And have motivation for you and the person you want to help and you want to be better so that it's something worth doing. If we become active doers and chesed goers in our life, it could really be the best criticism, quote-unquote, to those around us. We become our best selves, can lead to us being the best people we can, to have them learn from us and to move on to be others. That way we could better ourselves and those around us to elevate the world to a better place. You think about other sources, even Mishle points out, the scoffer doesn't like being reproved. Expel him, get him out. And scoffer's abomination to men. The scoffer doesn't just hold back himself. He holds back everyone around him. He brings them down. A cynic brings everyone down. Falls into the guilty category of those around him. And he, someone who's a scoffer and a mocker will bring riots and quarrelsomeness. Not good to have, not good to be. We talk about a criticism and cynicism, two very bad things to have in your life. One of the points to carry over is it's we should be grateful with our words and careful with our words and actions that they're positive and helpful to those around us. Because Avodah Zarah Gemara points out scoffing, Rabbi Eliezer says, is a severe sin. It's punished with suffering. Someone could be exterminated because of it. The Shulchan Aruch points out, as Sanhedrin points out, all scoffing is forbidden except for against idols. Shari Tshuva point out the sages would warn against scoffing and cynicism, even occasionally, even by chance. Another point to remember, cynicism and scoffing never helps, only hurts. Make sure to avoid it in life. Rabbeinu Bachaya, Rabbeinu Bachaya points out, don't rebuke the scoffer, he's going to hate you. Scoffer hates the person who criticizes him, while the fool makes light of the words of reproof and mocks the person who's wiser than they are. The Kedas Yitzchak points out, the scoffer is not going to respond to lectures, is not going to be involved, is not going to take anything we try to say to him. It's going to be counterproductive. We have to avoid burdening him with the additional sin of hating the people talking to him. He's not going to listen anyway. And the Shmir Salashan points out, all the world is punished because of the scoffer. Obviously something very much to avoid. Another point to think about, scoffing and cynicism leads to much negativity and destruction in the world. Make sure to rid it from around you. The Minchan Avi Ani points out on the Haggadah that the Alshach explains that one should be gentle when criticizing the scoffer, not too harsh. If you find yourself in the presence of a scoffer who rejects the Torah, better to criticize the wise person rather than the scoffer. They're not going to listen anyway. It's just going to turn them off even more. 
Rashi and Mishli points out, if one goes to scoffers, if you if you latch onto that kind of a person, you're going to scoff with them. Talmud points out an Eirch, and don't rebuke the scorn, he's going to hate you. Rebuke a wise man, he'll love you, but the scoffer is not going to like you, the scorner is not going to like you. Talmud points out cynical dismissal of the prophecy of Elisha. That's why the officer in that Haftorah was punished measure for measure. He didn't listen, he didn't believe in what Elisha had to say. The Yismach Yisrael points out someone who's too cynical, there's someone who's unworthy of redemption, they don't trust God, they don't listen to what Hashem wants and what Hashem says. And the Mivchar Penin points out, if you incur suspicion, don't complain of harsh criticism. Because you're suspicious, you're going to be criticized. But that's another point to remember. Be careful with whom and how you criticize. Use loving, gentle words in a loving manner. Rashi points out regarding Noach, some interpret his his essence of his of his mannerisms as criticism, meaning if he had been in Avram's generation, he would have been thought not as anything so special. We should realize who's around us, how, how we should portray ourselves, how we should try to raise ourselves up to those who are greater than us. Dasikana points out, even with unwarranted criticism, a person can remain humble, and a person should remain humble, and we should learn from Moshe Rabbeinu as the most humble of all, even though Hashem acted as, as advocate. The Rambam points out in, in Mishnah Torah, he who despises criticism will have no path for repentance because criticism begets repentance. Again, we don't really know how to do it in the best way nowadays, even though there are some manners to go about it. Better to not do it at all. But if you must, we could think about all the ways, all the things we talked about together. And the Torah Oroch points out the Torah hints at criticism directed at the Kohen Gadol in spite of his stature could become guilty of a sin caused by negligence because everyone could sin. Everyone sins. The question is how we can make sure to sin very little in our lives and to be listening to those around us who tell us how to be better. That's another point to remember. Realize we are held to a high standard. It's standard, especially with great people around us. Try to internalize lessons people teach you, even if others use harshness and words to you. Rabbeinu Bachaya also points out, Rabbeinu Bachaya, this that a criticism of their spiritual level, when the Torah refers to the Israelites as Ha'am, using one word, the Torah implies a criticism greater than any actual criticism that could have been used. And he also mentions... They're, they're, part of the song in Devarim is a collection of criticism, which Moshe argues with the people, talking about their conduct in the future and their conduct in the past, especially how he does it in subtle methods and subtle ways. Shnei Lachot points out Rashi comments, we can learn the praiseworthy character traits of the brothers from the criticism, how the Torah directs at them. They weren't hypocrites. The brothers who we just learned about with Yosef, they were the same outside as they were inside. They hated him inside, they hated him outside. At least they weren't hypocrites. They were candid and frank. The way that they talked on the outside were the way they talked on the inside. They stayed both in the ways. And that's the idea of how someone's name can reflect their essence, like Naval in the times of David, how he wasn't good inside or outside. He was offensive to everybody. But the brothers, at least, they they acted in the way they felt. And later on, they did tshuva, we believe. Shnei Luchos points out, Rashi understood criticism of Moshe will engage in lengthy prayer when the need of hour was action. He had to get up and move. Shailah Chodabrath also points out that you should realize that you we have to not shame our Jew. On the other hand, we're supposed to we're supposed to right? But we're not supposed to hurt them. The key to correct behavior is the way you reprove. You must do so with a friendly mean in order to have the person accept your constructive criticism. But if you yourself are guilty of the same thing, you must take care of yourself first before you criticize something else. You have to make sure to take care of yourself before you try to take care of someone else. If you need to criticize someone, a point to remember. Make sure to do it in the right manner that yourself are not guilty of the same problem. 
Norachayim points out criticism Ela represents a contrast when the word Ela is used, just a word again, of what was reported previously. And he also mentions that if Hashem had not rebuked and disciplined people, it would have been given them the impression that God himself condoned and agreed with the criticism that people were talking about in the times over there against Moshe. But Hashem himself stood up for Moshe because Moshe himself wouldn't stand up sometimes. The the source in, from David to Destruction points out, Yirmiyahu Hanavi was there to scold Yoshio HaMelech. And Yeshaya was able to reprimand Chizkiyo HaMelech. But Shlomo HaMelech had no Navi on hand to offer him criticism. It's very important to surround ourselves with people who could tell us that as it is to help us be better. From David's Destruction also points out, we, su- we suggest the Navi hints at some criticism of Yehoshaphat because he should have removed the moment, but he didn't do so or wasn't told to do so. That's another point to remember. It's always important to have leaders, rabbis, mentors in our lives who can guide us and lead us in the right ways with the right words and guidance for proper criticism. Make sure to assay lecharav, as Pirkei Elvis teaches us. The Jewish spiritual heroes points out to us, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai gained his favor of the authorities because of his criticism of the Roman government. And also, when Rabbi Shimon expressed criticism of the Romans, he was forced to hide in a cave. And when other people were judging, criticism was leveled against them. Rabbi Yehuda weighed his opinions before passing judgment. And also when Rabbi Yehuda realized his house was the talk of the country, he commanded a better religious discipline, a stricter discipline, in order to avoid criticism. And when Rabbi Yehuda heard people murmuring against him, Hillel left the bathhouse to avoid criticism. The point being, be careful of being too critical and too outspoken of those around you, especially government, even if done in a proper manner, as it could be dangerous and damaging in many ways. Gemar Brocha points out, If you see a scholar committing offense at night, do not criticize him for it by day. Perhaps he repented by then. Do you imagine perhaps he repented? You're supposed to be Don Lekavschus, the best type of judging. The only type of judging, in my opinion, is Don Lekavschus. See a tzaddik, assume the best. You see a Russia, don't assume the best. You see a Benoni, judge favorably. You have to realize what the surroundings, the conducts are. We don't know the whole story most times. Toward historic Judaism reminds us, rather than criticize, let us try to understand. Sometimes we don't have the facts. We don't understand the situation. We're missing pieces. The Rechaim points out, in Vayikra, then in, in Bereshis, Moshe became angry at the surviving sons of Aaron, spoke harshly with them. But really he was angry at Aaron also, but he only spoke to Aaron's son. He didn't criticize Aaron to his face. And Archaim says in Boratius, a person should constantly strive to provoke his own good urge. Criticize yourself to struggle against the Yetzirah and provoke the Yetzirah Tov. Should he fail to overcome his evil urge, you busy yourself with Torah study. That's the best way. That's what the Talmud means. Torah saves one from the Yetzirah. Not only when he's actively engaged in study, even when temporarily not busy with the Torah. And that's the point to carry over here. Realize before criticizing, we should try to be down the Kavschus, judge favorably. The only good type of judging, in my opinion. Use it through a Torah lens, which with Torah by our side, to decrease our urge to criticize or judge to begin with. Tractic Derech Zuta points out, accustom yourself to end on an auspicious note. If you must criticize or predict misfortune, your last words should be good words of confidence and comfort. Rabbeinu Bachel also points out there are two types of people, those who are obligated to criticize and those who we should avoid. And the three types of people we are obligated to criticize are the wise, the simple, and the youth. Sefer Akan points out, the reader of a book must be careful not to be hasty to criticize the words of the author till he's familiar with the style and method of the book and read all of it. And the Kavayasha lastly points out, Hashem is not pleased with those who criticize his people Israel or the souls of the righteous. The, soul, the Torah displays concern even for the dignity of the wicked. 
And that's the last point to carry over. Realize if we do need to criticize, do it in a manner that lessens the blow. Besides using a lover man- loving manner and words, try to sandwich method. Start with good. Put criticism in the middle using good manners, good words, and good endeavors, and end with good. You're such a good spouse. I just need a little more help with the kids in the morning. But I really appreciate all you do as you're such a great spouse. So let's just review the points to carry over. Thank you so much for staying with us. Be careful with our words and actions that they be positive and helpful to those around us. Cynicism and scoffing never helps. It only hurts. Make sure to avoid it in life. Avoid criticism in general. It never helps. Scoffing and cynicism leads to much negativity and destruction in the world. Make sure to rid it from around you. Be careful with whom and how you criticize. Use loving, gentle words in a loving manner. Realize we are held up to a high standard, especially with great people around us. Try to internalize lessons people teach you, even if others use harshness and words to you. If you need to criticize someone, make sure to do it in the right manner and that you yourself are not guilty of the same problem. Always important to have leaders, rabbis, mentors in our lives who can guide us. Lead us in the right ways with the right words and guidance for proper criticism. Make sure a selah harav, as Pirkei Elvis teaches, for yourself. Be careful of being too critical and too outspoken of those around you, especially government, even if done in a proper manner, as it could be dangerous and damaging in many ways. Realizing, realize before criticizing, we should try to be down the cuffs close, judge favorably. The only good ju- type of judging is my opinion. Use it through a Torah lens, a Torah by your side to decrease our urge to criticize or judge to begin with. And realize if we do need to criticize, do it in a manner that lessens the blow. Besides using a loving manner and words, try the sandwich method. First good, then criticism, then end with the good. Thank you so much for joining us. Join us, God willing, in two weeks. Where we talk a topic per session with some practical lessons here on the lecture series with Reb T. And I'm your host, Reb T.